Well, that um, that intro was uh, entirely uh, too kind, but um, but it is true that uh, I had the opportunity to meet with uh, Nathan when um, all of you uh, this what's going on here was just an idea. So um, it is with great joy that uh, that I'm that I'm here this morning and get an opportunity to open God's Word. I'm just. Uh, Really excited about uh, what God is doing here amongst all of you. Uh, this morning, I'm going to ask you all to turn your attention to um, the first letter of John. Our text will be First um, John chapter one, verses one through four. And so you can turn there in your Bibles, or do we have it printed in the bulletin? It's in the bulletin as well. Okay. So this is the beginning of a short letter. I want to set it up for you a little bit because I know you just came out of another study. It's the beginning of a short letter. It could easily be read in one setting. It's packed really tightly, however. The author is John, the beloved disciple, the same author as the gospel by his name. And John here is writing as an elder statesman that has seen it all from the very beginning. And the letter has some really interesting literary features. I always kind of like to look for those things as I'm getting ready to go through a book. But uh, for example, in this letter, John never uses the word gospel or good news, but it is a writing that is completely centered on the reality and the work of Christ. Unlike some of Paul's letters, for example, John's thinking is not always linear. He kind of will introduce a subject and then go back and revisit it again as you read through. Similar to his gospel, John uses symbols like um, darkness, light, abiding, and walking. And uh, this is considered to be what, is, what are called the, one of the Catholic epistles, meaning that it was universal and not just destined for one particular church experiencing one particular situation. So it's, it's for every church. It's for Christ's central church. Like his gospel, John gives you a very clear purpose for his writing. In this case, you'll find it in chapter 5 of this epistle and verse 13 where he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So he gives you a purpose statement in this little letter. We can gain some other insight from this purpose statement. John is writing to believers. His desire is that those who have believed on and trusted in Christ would grow in their faith and in their devotion. The passage we're looking at this morning, then, is a prologue, and it's a really beautiful one that just grips me. It begins with a sense of, I think, of excitement and urgency. John doesn't pause to give the typical salutations and greetings that you find in some of the other letters. He doesn't take time to give commendations and uh, say some niceties. And, and this might be on account of the fact that John was writing to doubting readers, people that were falling away, having second thoughts about the faith, being confused over different things. Friends, he's writing to brothers and sisters in trouble. And so I'll be reading from the first epistle of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. So please follow along if you would. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. 
that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word. It is good for you. It's given to you in love. Pray with me, please. Oh God, you have shown us grace and your mercy in Christ. And now, Lord, open our hearts and minds to your word and to this testimony of the reality of your Son. Father, I ask that you would use this time to bring confidence and hope to all who are listening. Give us the joy that John directs us to. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, give us joy that emanates from your great love, we ask, through Christ. Amen. And so I have a question for you this morning, and that is, do, do you really take joy in knowing Christ? There, I, I know that there are many things vying for your heart and vying for your attention. How does your identity in Christ motivate you? How is it a part of your life? Occasionally, I like to watch this show called American Pickers, if y'all seen it. Uh, These two guys go from state to state and town to town searching for valuable antiques and collectibles. Usually they're in old barns or warehouses just sifting through lots of junk until they find that one thing, the one thing that, for whatever reason, has uh, some value. Sometimes it's an item that is simply just, like, old. Sometimes it's an oddity or a long-lost portrait of somebody that was once famous. And my favorite ones are when they find some obscure part from an old motorcycle and immediately identify it, holding it up. Look, it's a cylinder head from a 1954 Vincent. Isn't it awesome? (laughs) And then they'll stand amidst all this junk, joyfully holding up that latest find as as like a trophy of their victory. And you know what? They, They usually have to wade through a whole lot of junk just to get a few good pieces. John directs his letter into a world that also has a whole lot of junk. Sometimes our lives are so full of junk and superfluous stuff that we miss or forget the enormity of the gospel of Jesus, the enormity of what Christ has done. And so as one who had lived the truth that he was proclaiming, John begins with this authoritative statement and declaration telling the church that The historical reality of Jesus brings joy to those who trust in him. Too often, I think, Christians are willing to settle for less than this kind of deep joy that John is talking about that would animate every bit of our lives. C.S. Lewis put it this way in a famous quote. He said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. And like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. Brothers and sisters, if what Christ has done really is as grand and glorious as John describes, it should be reflected in every bit of our lives, every aspect of our lives. 
Jesus, the very light of God, breaking into the darkness of the world, offers hope. And that hope is the joyous redemption and reconciliation of all things. It is a huge gospel. It is, I get in trouble for this sometimes, but I say it is, it is of cosmic proportions. And so my sermon this morning is about this expectation of joy in Christ, the expectation of joy in fellowship, and the expectation of joy amid the ruins. We know that John was in charge of the churches that uh, were called Asia Minor in, uh, in his latter years. In the book of Acts, chapter 20, Paul has established a church in Ephesus that John is now responsible for. It's one of the churches that presumably received this letter. Just before Paul left, he told the elders and overseers of the church to be on guard. He told them that fierce wolves would be coming in and that they would be speaking twisted things. And so as John sends this letter, he has seen that warning come true. There's much speculation about the exact nature of this strange teaching. Nobody's quite sure what it was that was confusing people and pulling them away. But in any case, John wants to set the record straight about the Lord Jesus, who he is, what he has done. Even today, there's much confusion about who Christ is, what, what he has done and what it means, if anything, for people today. Much, of course, has been written about the times that we live in now, called post-Christian or post-modern. There are, for sure, some aspects of our time that are unique, and I'm thinking of the issues of globalization, secularization, mass and instant communication. But ever since the coming of Christ, controversy has raged. And yet, through time and era, the church prevails. And so while there may be some unique challenges of our time, challenge is part of our history, the history of our church. John was the perfect one to answer this challenge for his day because he had been one of the disciples closest to the Lord Jesus. He was part of this inner circle along with Peter and Andrew and James. John writes with clarity and he writes with conviction and certainty. He wants to establish truth in the minds of his readers and, and as he does it, he does it in love. He's known as the apostle of love. He later writes in, in this very letter that God is love. And his love compels John to speak truth. And so, straight away we have this proclamation that Jesus Christ is a historic reality and trusting in him brings joy, or ought to bring joy. That is what John lifts up amongst the junk heap as the source of joy. He does not say, I want to suggest a solution, or let me give you a few possibilities no, for him, the Lord Jesus is the potent reality of the world. He says, we have seen him, we have touched him. Does, does the world need proclamation like that today? Does the church need proclamation like this today? Do you need proclamation like this today? John is declaring nothing less that in Christ Jesus, God, the very God, has broken into this world. So John is speaking with apostolic authority. He joins with others in declaring this to be true. Peter, for example, said, we did not follow cunningly de devised fables. We didn't fo follow fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This reality is expected to bring joy. The 
Dictionary defines joy as emotion of great delight or happiness caused by something exceptionally good or satisfying. Like the rest of the world, Christians are often stuck with many things competing for that joy, or at least promising to offer some joy. You're bombarded daily with images and ideas that promise to bring joy or at least great satisfaction. But John asserts that real joy is caught up in knowing and understanding that God has come down. God has come down in the Lord Jesus. In John's gospel, he's concerned to prove and show that Jesus is the Son of God. And so in this epistle, he's concerned to show what it means to you and to everyone. And this is why he refers to Jesus as being the word of life. He came not only to reveal God to you, but to actually impart life to you. Look at the end of verse 1 and verse 2. The word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify it and, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. As one of the reformers put it, the Son of God became the Son of Man, that the sinful sons of men might become the sons of God. Jesus is the word of life, and he gives life. He gives life now. He gives life now. Sometimes I think we focus too much on the eternal aspect of this life that he gives, which is certainly true, but he gives life now. What John has in mind is the beginning of, of this life with God, right now. And that is why he begins this letter with the words, that which was from the beginning. He's referring to Christ. He's being absolutely clear that Jesus is, is God, eternal, from the beginning. The life that he manifested is available to you. You can be partakers of it. Friends, do you see that life in Christ is a present reality for you now? It's something that you can have now? Something that can animate your life and bless you now? You can draw together at this church, not on account of what country you are from or what age, your age is or social status, but on account of the reality that through Christ you are all citizens of his kingdom. More and more frequently I've had the opportunity to meet with refugees that are new to our country. This is something that is really shaping our city. We have many immigrants and refugees coming in. Several months ago, I met with a man named Alois who came here with his family from Congo after having waited in a camp for many, many years. And he counts it a great blessing to be here. And at least right now, he thinks that everyone, everyone that he meets in Charlottesville is wonderful and loving and kind. Though he doesn't speak English, he wanted to come to our church, and so he attended one Sunday. He was overjoyed, even though our service, I suspect, was probably quite different from anything he had experienced before. I spoke with him later through a translator. He said that while he was at the service, he was taking many pictures with his, uh, with his phone. And then he sent the pictures to his friends in Africa, accompanied with these simple words. He said to his friends, also waiting in a camp, we are not alone. We are not alone. Friends, this is the power of the gospel writ large. This is the power of the hope we have in Christ, whereby we can stand with people who have suffered and people that seem to be very unlike us and, and say together, Jesus is Lord of all. Amen. 
John expects that this great gift of God brings not only fellowship with God, but fellowship with other people. He's a healing God. Here again, the beloved disciples, uh, the, the disciple takes, claim, takes aim not only at the people in the first century church, but he's taking aim at all of us. Look at verse 3, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John is telling you that he wants you to share that he and what he and the other apostles had. Now, now keep in mind that at this point, John is a very old man. You might expect him to say, you know, this is pretty good, but just a few more years, I'll know what it's really about. On the other side of death, I'll have a clearer understanding of things. But he says, Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. It is expected that Christians know this and know it deeply. As I said earlier, John writes this epistle that you may know that you have eternal life. So we have here a matter of assurance. Now, I'm, I'm very aware that absolute statements, especially about spiritual things, are highly suspect in our age. But this is the consistent witness of the Bible. The disciples are they're actually sorry for those who continue to walk in darkness. Paul says that the love of Christ rules him or controls him, and that since Christ died for him, he lives for Christ. Stephen gives his life to proclaim the reality of the risen Lord. All of them have a certain assurance. The, the idea of a maybe Christianity is foreign to the Bible and to the sovereignty of God. So in effect, John is saying, we were eyewitnesses. And we saw, we touched, we heard. We have been blessed and we want to share it, share it among you. All Christians share this experience of the historic reality of Christ and the grace of God in calling them to himself. Christians may not come to that experience in the same way. We've different personalities and God uses many means to draw his people to himself, but in the end, in the end Christians share a certain knowledge of the reality of Christ in their lives. Now, that might seem really primitive here uh, at, in our time. We're in the 21st century. We know that huge strides are being made in science and communication and medicine and many other things, and, and we can all praise God for that, but maybe some think there's some other way of knowing God, some other path. Maybe there's some other way of gaining a greater spiritual connection. We're more advanced people now, some may think. There have been, of course, over the centuries, many academic and mystical quests for truth to get to the bottom of things many books have been written on the what they call the quest for the real Jesus in all of these cases the inquirers end up making Jesus what they want him to be something less than who he is something less than the Bible and the historic witness of the church have proclaimed through the ages perhaps they say he's simply a wandering itinerant preacher with a few good things to teach us perhaps the accounts we have of Jesus are not really about him, but about people's feelings of him. Many theories have been put forth, but they all fail when they refuse to name him as God and Lord of all. And here John is starkly clear, and he's insistent that Jesus is a historic reality, and that he is the giver of life. This 
reality draws people into fellowship with him and with one another. He, he says you can know this. He expects you to know this. Christians are not men and women hoping for salvation. They have experienced it in their lives and it leads them, like John, to share it. They share it with joy. The historic reality of Christ brings joy to those who trust in him. Friends, that is joy amid the ruins of our world. The beloved disciple has a realistic view of a world that has been marred by sin, and yet he says we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. He's aware of the enormity of sin, and he's aware of the cosmic scope of the saving work of Christ. And that work continues even now. That work continues now. Lately, it seems that I can't seem to like be in a conversation without speaking of this movie, Jesus in Athens. I've seen it three times. I highly commend it to you. It is a recently released movie that tells the story of the church responding to the refugee crisis of uh, thousands and thousands of refugees showing up on the shores of Greece. Brothers and sisters, it's like woken the church up. It is, it's an amazing thing. This huge migration was brought about by many complicating factors, war, politics, hopelessness. But someone else has shown up, and it is the Spirit of Christ that has shown up in real power. And so people with no hope are finding hope. People with no faith are receiving it. People who had never heard of Christ are being restored. Jesus has indeed come to set the captives free. In the sweeping and grand story of God's redemptive work in history, we see that there is a pers- there's personal sin, and there's evil, and there's systemic sin and evil. It entraps people. It ruins your fellowship with God. It clouds your understanding of yourselves, that you bear the image of God. It ruins relationships. It affects the created world, and it brings turmoil. But in Christ, the Creator God has crashed through, has broken through the darkness. In Christ, there will be restoration. He is the restorer of fellowship with God. We usually know that, and we usually get stuck there. Jesus restores our fellowship with God. We can, we're made for worship. We're made to be in communion with God. And through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we can be restored to God. But he's the restorer of the image of God in you. He's the restorer of relationships and fellowship with other people. All authority has been given to him, and he is the restorer of the created world. Friends, this work has begun, and it continues. That is why countless Christian martyrs have gone to their deaths through the centuries with a hymn on their lips or knelt before their captors in hope. In hope. Whatever dangers are besetting us, whatever threats may arise in our culture, the church still has a message for the world. For those that do not believe or who have not heard, it is an evangelistic message calling people to joy. Joy that there is hope, joy that their lives matter, joy that God is also a God of mercy and that his justice will prevail. He will set things right. For Christians, it's a message to build up people and establish them in their faith. Deep faith. Deep faith that is not blown about by every wind of doctrine. Deep faith that is centered on its proper object, which is Christ the Lord, whom John has seen and heard and touched. Even in this very brief passage, you see both an inward and an outward working of God that is reflected in the rest of the letter and and to which we should attend. There is this inward reality and personal reality of 
new life in Christ. And there is this outward reality of manifesting that truth and bringing it to others, that it might be a blessing. The, the sum of the two is joy, joy that is complete. Christians are not called to extricate themselves from the world for the sake of Christ, but to participate in it on account of him. This does not entail that you are winning only if you dominate. Christ has already won. It does not mean that your participation is only about correcting people and saving souls, although we want to do that. Dear friends, if you know this Christ, you want to share that that joy. You have a great gift. I'm not simply speaking of eternal life as life never-ending, but new life that has begun or is beginning now. It gives you insight into the world. It gives you understanding of the forces that are at work and the restoration that we so desperately need and that God will bring. When John says here that our joy may be complete or that our joy may be full, he's, he's including you. It's, it's you he's talking about. And he's anxious that Christian people should have a fullness of joy, though they live in a world that seems many times undone with evil and strife. And there's a, a danger here for all of us to consider. I feel this a lot myself with the work that I do. As your eyes are open more and more to this magnificent glory of Christ's saving work, you also become more aware of everything that's not right. Everything that sets itself up against the truth and the beauty of God. You become more aware of injustices and hatred and evil. It can lead you to a sense of hopelessness and despair. Another aspect of this is that you can just be resigned to it all. You make the best of a bad situation by cutting yourself off. Neither of these produce or nurture the kind of joy that John is writing about and that he's clearly infected with. He wants us to be infected with. John emphasizes later in this letter that we're not to be in fear. It is the love of God that removes your fear. Perfect love casts out fear, he says in uh, chapter 4 and verse 18. And, of course, other writers echo this same reality of what it means to be in Christ. Paul writes to Timothy that God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. This can be difficult for Christians because, as I said earlier, you become more and more aware, more attuned to the forces that are in play. But they're not to overwhelm you. Great fear in the church leads to legalism and a fortress mentality where we just want to retreat, we want to stay safe by cutting ourselves off. But friends, your joy, your hope is much needed in a world where joy appears to be in short supply. Through your union with Christ, you are given a gift to see the world anew. Let, let your insight, your understanding, and your joy as a lover of God redeemed in Christ come to bear on the world and your community and your church and your school. In John's Gospel, the Lord Jesus gives you this clear-eyed view of the world as it is. He says in John 16, uh, in verse 33, In the world you will have tribu- tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. He also warned believers that they might be hated and rejected as he was, but there is a promise from the Lord Jesus for all that receive and trust in him. And so, 
If you forget in five minutes everything that I've said here today, or if your heart is heavy, or if you're anxious about things, remember these, these words from your Savior. Your hearts will rejoice, and no one, no one will take your joy from you. Your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Friends, Christ has come. He has overcome sin and death. John also wrote the book of Revelation, the consummation of all things, and so I'll leave you with these words of joy to come taken from that book. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was sitting on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Will you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for your word to us. Your word is powerful and it's good and it's intended to build us up in hope and love and faith. And I pray, Lord, uh, that you will just kindle in us the kind of joy that we ought to have as followers of the Lord Jesus. Give us joy, Lord, that is infectious, joy that is welcoming, joy that brings hospitality and beckons others to come in. I pray, Lord, that um, you would use us for the building of your kingdom. I pray, Lord, that you would use Christ Central Church for the building of your kingdom here in Charlottesville. And that this group, which started small and is growing, would have a greater and greater impact on reaching people with the joy of Christ. We ask in his name. Amen.